Or perhaps there's this tense moment and you feel the anxiety as you watch the film and it's almost more than you can take and it just keeps getting worse and worse and the drama builds and the anxiety builds and then there's a bit, someone says a joke or something like that to, to ease a bit of the drama and the anxiety. It's called comic relief in film. Now what I'm about ready to do is not comic, but there is a bit of relief. For we have been in Lamentations for a few weeks now and kind of been in that drama, in that anxiety. And yes, we are going to read a psalm of lament this morning, but it has a little bit different tone to it this morning. And that's on purpose, knowing where we are and where we've been. And so I would invite you, if you're able, to please rise as as we read God's Word together from Psalm 63. Hear the reading of God's Word. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon You in the sanctuary, beholding Your power and glory, because Your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise You. So I will bless You as long as I live. In Your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise You with joyful lips when I remember You upon my bed and meditate on You in the watches of the night. For You have been my help, and in the shadow of Your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to You. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down in the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your word. I pray that you would take the words of this, your humble servant, and carry them to these, your people. That you would indeed mold and shape, strengthen, exhort, Comfort, guide, convict, and uplift. Lord, for this is what you have promised that you will do with your word. Teach us, disciple us. Do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so Lord, just as you have told us that the the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but your word will stand firm and true forever. May you make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Lament. We've acknowledged over the course of the last few weeks that lament is a foreign concept to us, isn't it? As Western Americans in particular, living in North Texas, we have been accustomed to not lament. We don't like it. We don't appreciate it. It's difficult for us to sit in that. Even as I had uh, the preface to reading of God's Word today, I understand even the tension that there is even in just being there for a few weeks. It's difficult for us to remain in lament. It's difficult, I think, because it's hard for us, male or female, to admit our weaknesses, to admit our frailty, to admit our brokenness. We've also acknowledged the last few weeks that the Lord has given us, through laments, the ability to lament. The ability as a way to see and experience His love and, yes, even His mercy. To give us a way out, almost, if you will. A a tool that He uses to draw us closer to Himself. Even in the most difficult of days, in the hardest of times, He gives us things like laments and the psalms of laments 
to draw us close to Himself. We have explored some of the biblical concepts and the details of lament, but it's important for us to understand even a little bit more as we move forward. You see, often when the Bible has laments or psalms of lament, it usually occurs within one or two categories. Not always, but usually. One is a corporate lament, meaning the body of the believers laments together. This is what we're seeing in the book of Lamentations. Although there is one author, it's the body of Christ that's looking out over this city and lamenting as one corporate body. Or two, there's an individual lament. It's good that we as people of the Lord understand that the Lord encourages the body of Christ to corporately lament as a whole. That we as a body, as a church, as a family, as a people, that we mourn with other bodies, other churches, other people, that we mourn with those who mourn. That we weep with other churches and bodies and people that weep. That we cry as a body, as other bodies cry. That we hurt with other bodies that hurt. For the call as a corporate lament is is aimed not only at our own hurts, not only at our own pains, but the hurts and the pains of other groups, other people groups, other organizations, other segments of our world even if those hurts aren't our hurts. Even if those pains aren't our pains. Dare I say, even if we're not responsible for their hurts or their pains. Even if we did not commit their hurts and their pains. It's still a biblical understanding of lament that we as the Lord's people would hurt with them, would cry with them. then there are individual laments. We have a much better time understanding individual laments because, as I've said, as Western Americans in North Texas accustomed and shaped and molded into thinking that the individual is all-powerful and almighty and all-consuming, this is really easy for us to connect with the individual laments. We have a much better time understanding it for we are fashioned and shaped by these ideas of the individual. So when we come across the individual laments, such as we did this morning as we read Psalm 63, we connect a little bit better with it, don't we? It makes more sense to us, Psalm 63 does, than when we read the book of Lamentations, just because we're more familiar with that kind of language. We, however, live in a culture that really only survives in the consumer individualistic attitudes, don't we? The individual feeds and nourishes the whole. This is how we look at the body of Christ. The individual first, and then the body. So we have a much better, under, much better understanding of the individual laments. For when we hurt, that's important. When we individually hurt, that's more important when, then, when the body hurts. Because it's more acute. We may even go as far to say that we don't even care what other people are doing, or feeling, or talking about if we are hurting. There is no other hurts. There are no other pains. If I am hurting and if I am in pain, everything else, there is no other pain. And I don't really care because my feelings are more important than your feelings. So we understand individual laments. 
So when we come across places in Scriptures like Psalm 63, which is an individual psalm of lament of David, it's a much easier thing to grasp than a book like Lamentations, where a whole body weeps for an entire city. In addition, Psalm 63 seems to be a bit more upbeat, doesn't it, than Lamentations. A more positive lament, if there is such a thing, than reading about bile and tears flowing in the streets, as we did just last week in the book of Lamentations. Yet, and the obvious praise of this lament of David is a deep, deep sorrow For this psalm is written in and out of tremendous hurt and pain. David is hurting very badly. He's in a bad spot in a lot of different ways as he pens this lament. This psalm that was written, as the editors of the Bible generously point out to us, thank you, editors, that David wrote this psalm as he was in the wilderness of Judah. David was not in the city of Jerusalem. He was not in his posh palace but he was fleeing for his life. Did David not have a place to go? Did, not, did David not have a palace he could turn to? A sanctuary that he could run and be protected? Well, the answer is yes, but also no, right? The answer is yes, he did have a place in the city of Jerusalem that he could go, but no, because he was in a bad spot. He was in a bad spot because he was fleeing for his life from his son. From his son, Absalom was trying to kill him. A bit more backstory as to how David got here. It's important to understand this in order to understand the lament. To understand where David is coming from. We need to go into our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapters 13-19. to Now don't worry, we're not going to read six very long chapters of 2 Samuel, but I would encourage you, if you haven't read 2 Samuel in a while, go back and you will have some pretty cool stories. Cool in the sense that it's dramatic and it is violent and it is grotesque and it is unnerving. And yet this is David's story. These stories are of, and I'm going to be graphic because Scripture is graphic, they're stories of, of lust of incest, of rape, of murder, of schemes, of underhanded politics. And this is just in David's family, among his children, let alone in the city at large. So again, we don't have time to tell all of the stories that we find in this dysfunctional family. But say that because Absalom's obsession for power and wealth and might He went to great lengths and waited for years and schemed for years in order to finally get to the point where he could pull that switch and he had enough guys and enough support behind him that he had the ability to to overthrow his father. To make up lies and schemes about his dad. And it was through these schemes and twists that Absalom was finally able to garner enough support to overthrow or at least to force David out of his palace, out of the city, and into the wilderness, fleeing for his life. It's there where David is looking out over his life over the past few years that David fled into the wilderness. But he didn't only flee into the wilderness, did he? 
He flee into the love and the mercy of the Lord. David had no idea what was before him. He didn't know what was going to happen with his children. But he knew that his life was in danger. And he knew that as his life was in danger, that his life was in danger, whether he stayed in Jerusalem or he was in the wilderness, in both places, he could very easily die. For his life and the life of his family were utterly broken, were in shambles, were in ruins, and there seemed to be no hope. But David found himself in the understanding that it is in the love of the Lord. And it is the love of the Lord is all that matters. And he says, even more than life itself. Even more than the life of his abused daughter. Of his horrible sons. Even more than his own life. For this is what we see in verse 3 of Psalm 63, don't we? No matter where his story has taken him, even in the horrible condition of his family, even as he flees for his life, even in the heartache and the loss, David understands something. He understands something not about himself, not about his family. He understands God's love. He understands something specific even about the love of the Lord. Not that it's just for the hard times. Not that it's just for the good times. But it's this covenant faithfulness of steadfast love day after day after day after day after day. And he says that's better than life. And it's this love that moves him to praise. It's this love that leads him to worship. He understands that the steadfast covenant faithfulness of the love moves his lips to praise and his hands be lifted up in worship. For you see, it's in the deepest canyon that we see the love of the Lord in all of his glory. I was at an event this past week um, at the Levitt Pavilion, an event for uh, uh, Young Life Arlington. And it was a a great event, a little bit uh, rainy and the weather was a little bit sketchy, but it was a good time nonetheless. However, there was an artist there, and she used this illustration, and I thought it was very good and even applicable to what we were talking about here. She said during COVID that she couldn't go anywhere. She really couldn't do the things that she'd like to do. So she looked around, and she was trying to find a place that she could travel to. So she was looking at national parks and things like that, and she determined that she was going to go to the Grand Canyon. And so there she went in the middle of covid And as she was entering into the canyon and going down, 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 I don't know how many of you have ever done that, but it's a really long walk, and I would not recommend the donkeys. It's not worth it. Don't do it. Don't pay the money. But as you go down the canyons, all you see more and more is canyon wall, and it gets deeper, and the canyons get deeper and deeper and deeper. And she got to the bottom of the canyon, and she knew it was there, but too her amazement, there was a river running through the canyon. A raging river. And she said, is there a better illustration of the gospel in the middle of COVID than the Grand Canyon? I would say, Miss Colburn, I don't think so. How many of us in life is it's the same way, right? And this is where David finds himself going down, down, down in the pit. 
And all we're seeing is these very large canyon walls and they're just there and they're, they're ominous and, they, and they, 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 they loom over us. And yet at the bottom is a refreshing stream of grace and mercy and love. This is what David's talking about. I, my life is a mess, O oh God, but Your steadfast love that keeps flowing through it all day after day, moment after moment, is a refreshing balm to his soul. We may not be fleeing for our lives from our children. Hopefully not, anyway. But there are so many times when we feel like we are in that desert, in that wilderness, isn't there? Over the course of the past year and a half, there have been so many bizarre and crazy events we wonder if it is real or not. Like, is it, is it, did the last year and a half actually take place? It seems like a, a fog or, or a haze almost. So many things about humanity have been exposed, haven't they? Really? That's the way? Things that we never thought would come to light are, are now out in the open. We felt disconnected, haven't we? We felt disconnected with those that we thought we had a lot in common with, and it turns out maybe we don't. We felt disconnected from work, from school, from friends, from family, from church. There's been so much disconnect. If I were to look over the course of the past 16 months or so, I think I would define it in those terms. Disconnected. Not a part of something. And I believe that's going to have very long-lasting impacts on us as individuals, as a body, as a nation, as a world, as a generation. Things are just lost. And, it, and if the disconnect isn't enough, there, there just seems to be more loss, lives lost, jobs lost, relationships lost. All these things have been damaged. Our identities have been lost. Character has been lost. And we find ourselves maybe not lost in the wilderness of Judah, but lost in the wilderness of the internet cloud. Just wandering, trying to figure it all out. But yet, as David sees, and what I want us to see this morning, the steadfast love of the Lord continues to flow like that river at the bottom of the canyon. It's the love, the steadfast love of the Lord that took on flesh to experience the same kind of loss. The same kind of disconnect that, he, that we feel. He at one point was disconnected with His Father from all eternity. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that caused the flesh of Jesus Christ to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows and our punishment to the cross. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that, that raised Jesus from the dead and caused Him to arise and sits at the right hand of God the Father. You see, because without that steadfast love, we are already dead. As Paul tells us, in our sin and in our misery, 
we are worse than in the wilderness. We are actually already dead. But it's because of the steadfast love of the Lord, of His grace and His mercy, that by grace and through faith we've been given new life. The Holy Spirit, because of His love, breathes new life into us. And we are new creatures. We are now a people. We are God's people. And David says this love, this kind of love, this kind of grace, this kind of mercy, it's better than life itself. It's better than my breath. It's better than my family. This is all I need. Because it's all I have. What then is our response to this? What is David's response? We recognize that our lives too are broken. And we're shattered. Maybe not to the point of David's life, but our lives, if we look at it, are in ruins oftentimes and in turmoil. And the only hope that we have is the steadfast love of the Lord. That's it. David recognized it was not in his might, for that didn't get him anywhere. He still had to flee. He had mighty men that would fight for him, that would die for him. And that wasn't enough. He had more money than he knew what to do with. And that wasn't enough. He had more power. He had more glory. But not even those things could stop his ruin. All he had was the steadfast love of the Lord. But it's hard to seek the Lord in the wilderness, isn't it? Whether that's the wilderness of Judah or the wilderness of the internet cloud. It's hard to see the river at the bottom of the canyon. So I wonder, the question that I have for us this morning is, how do I seek the Lord in those moments? If I acknowledge that the steadfast love of the Lord is what I need, so what? What does that, what does that mean for me today? What, what is my response? How, how do I do this? We seek the Lord in all of our lives. Not just in the convenient parts of our lives. Not just in the Sunday morning part of our lives or the Wednesday night part of our lives or the Tuesday morning part of our lives. But in every part of our lives, we seek the Lord. We seek the Lord above all else. We seek the Lord in all of our lives. And so then what does that look like? If we look at the first two verses of Psalm 63, we see that we seek the Lord with all of our heart. In verses 1 and 2, we see that David does indeed do just that. He seeks the Lord with everything that he has, with all of his heart. The love of the Lord and the relationship that he has with the Lord is not an afterthought. It's not something like, oh, bad things happened, I should turn to the Lord. Oh, my, my life is in ruins or shambles, well, I should turn to the Lord. No, in everything that he does, and everything he's doing, he is seeking the Lord. Not just seeking, is it? It's an earnest seeking. He earnestly seeks the Lord. And I think if you're like me, which I'm pretty sure you're like me, that we read things like earnestly seek the Lord. And we say, okay, I, I get that on some level. But it's one of those things in Christianese where we just say. And we forget the depth of meaning that's behind I earnestly seek the Lord. Let's just break this down for a second if you will bear with me. 
To earnestly do something is to what? You know the answer. It's not just to haphazardly do it or to casually do it. Or you just don't, you don't, you don't haphazardly run a marathon. You have to earnestly seek out training and doing these things. You have to sweat. You have to work at it. You have to run countless 5Ks and 10Ks before you can begin to think about running a marathon. This is what it means to earnestly pursue marathon distance. And this here is what David's saying. I earnestly, I'm earnestly seeking the Lord. It's not an afterthought. It's a conscious thing that he's doing. Okay, so earnestly is probably the easy part of that. But he's earnestly seeking the Lord. Now, David doesn't use this phrase here, but oftentimes David and other authors in Scripture, when they say seeking the Lord, they also attach seeking the Lord's face. Okay, what does that have to do with this? Seeking the Lord's face is a Hebrew term really saying he's seeking the Lord's presence. So when we're looking at someone's face, it usually means that we're in some near position to that person. And we're intent and we're we're having a conversation with them. So what is David saying here? He's earnestly seeking the presence of the Lord in the middle of the wilderness. He's crying out to God, I need you and I need your love in the middle of this place where I find myself. Your presence with me, your love for me is better than even my life. David longs for the presence of the Lord. So in these times of disconnect and isolation and brokenness, this is our prayer. To seek the face of the Lord. To seek the presence of the Lord. But how does David do that? How how do we do that? David is seeking the presence of the Lord as one who longs for the taste of cool water. An immediate need for David, right? In the wilderness, probably not a lot of rivers running through canyons in the middle of the Judean wilderness. So his illustration in this, part, in this verse really is his most desperate physical need. He needs water. Yet the steadfast love of the Lord is even more than the desire for water. His carnal craving is nothing compared to his need for the love of the Lord. So he's seeking for the Lord as one that earnestly seeks a drop of water in the desert. Are you beginning to get the tenor of the illustration here? So he's desperate. He's seeking. He doesn't need water as much as he needs the love and the presence of the Lord. But then where does he turn to? Where does he find this presence? Do you see it there? He says, I turn to the sanctuary. The sanctuary of the outdoors? The sanctuary of AT&T Stadium? The sanctuary of the ease of At home? No, he turns to the sanctuary of the Lord in worship. Where does David find the presence of the Lord? Where does he find, or what is he longing for to see and to know the presence of the Lord? He's looking back at the city, back to the temple, back to where the people were, back to where God is in His house, in His worship, in the worship of His people. The same people that experience disconnect and loss. 
the same people that have similar joys and struggles as David. And so this then is what we do as well. In our loneliness, in our isolation, in our disconnectivity, in our connectivity, if you understand the pun, where we truly find the presence of the Lord in a unique way is here, now, in the worship of our Lord who loves us with a covenant steadfastness. And we find that not only with the Lord, but what David is longing for as he sits alone in the wilderness is to be connected with the Lord's people, to be in the presence of the Lord in the sanctuary, not only with God, but with His people. So we seek the Lord with all of our hearts. We worship with all of our hearts. And then we seek the Lord with all of our voice. As David finds himself in the sanctuary, in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord's people, and the love of the Lord is sweeter, more pleasant, more desirous than even his desire for life and water. As David flees for his life from his crazed son, as David finds himself struggling for life in the desolate wilderness of Judah, as he finds himself placed in the sanctuary of the Lord, all he has left to do is to sing the praises of the Lord. David is smack in the middle of a terrible tragedy, heartbreak and distress, in the middle of the most heinous of dysfunctional families. David says, my mouth will continue to praise. But what I notice about this is David doesn't shy away from the hurt and the pain, does he? He doesn't say it doesn't exist. He fully acknowledges that he's he's thirsty, that he's hungry. He needs something that he doesn't have. He fully recognizes the, the plight of where he finds himself, that he's isolated in the middle of the wilderness. And yet, he continues to praise. He fully acknowledges his circumstances. And he even graphically defines his gnawing ache in his stomach and in his throat. But it's to the Lord that he turns. Because the Lord has never turned from him. And then David will never cease to sing his praises. This is so hard to do, isn't it? So hard. So hard when we struggle in life. I find myself, when I'm in that moment, I don't lift my hands and praise. My mouth isn't always full of worship. My hands may come down in frustration and anger. That's usually where I turn. My mouth usually has resentment and anger, frustration when life is difficult. This is where we normally turn, isn't it? when we're in that canyon, when we're in that moment, when we're in the wilderness of disconnectivity, we we turn to ourselves and we turn to our anger and our frustration. Yet the lament of David doesn't turn in on himself. It doesn't turn further into his heart. It doesn't turn into having to find feelings of good vibrations or, or thoughts of 
positivity or health and wealth. No, it doesn't turn. If, if, I, if I could just make more, more money, then my problems will go away. If I had better relationships, then my problems will go away. If I had a better job, my problems would go away. No. David moves the attention away from himself and looks to the covenant faithfulness of the steadfast love and mercy of the Lord. That although his life is complete and terrible mess, he sings praises to the Lord. Therefore, in our hurts and our struggle, there's no measure of strength that we can muster up to make it go away. There are not enough tears to cry to make the pain go away. There is not enough pounding on the table to make the frustration go away. In our hurts and struggles, it's not in ourselves. We can't find that solace and that balm somewhere deep down inside. For the further we go deep inside, the further the pain and the hurt gets. The more broken we see ourselves, the more hurting we see ourselves. So then what's our alternative? Where do we turn? Our comfort then comes from the presence and the steadfast love of the Lord. And David goes on in verse 4 that no matter how long he lives, he will continue to praise the Lord. Whether that's for a day or a thousand days, David's mouth will be filled with praise. He will continue to seek the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his voice. The balm for our souls is in the, in the deepest wilderness is to worship the Lord. When we're at our lowest, when we're at that point where we just don't know if we can go on anymore, we turn our thoughts and our praise to the worship and the steadfast love of the Lord. For it's only there where we find our comfort. It's only there where we find a stronghold and a rock. Because we see what the Lord has done for us. We see how He has been faithful to us. To worship the Lord for what He has sacrificed for us. in order that He would be present with us. Our mouths then praise with joyful lips for all of our days. And as we scan further down the psalm, part of the difficulty with pain and hurt is the fact that each time we are hurt, there's a, there, there are expectations or hopes that have been lost. Aren't there? Isn't that a part of sorrow? Isn't that a part of pain and hurt? That the things that we hoped for, the things that we expected, the things that we longed for are no longer a possibility. When relationships are broken and the hurt and the pain in that, why is it so hard? Because we had hopes. We had expectations. We had dreams. We had desires of what this relationship would be and what it could be. And then when that's broken, it shatters our souls. And this is where David's finding himself with his children. We have dreams, desires, hopes for our kids. And his kids turned out to be a mess, a true mess. And his hopes were crushed. And this is the stinging part of brokenness how those that we love could suddenly turn and no longer be faithful or loyal. Or worse yet, those that we love pass away and our hopes and our dreams are, are, are no longer there. 
It's the loss. The loss of that relationship. The loss of hopes. How those, how those that we had hopes and dreams for were no longer a part of those hopes and dreams, right? This is David's struggle. His own son. His own son is trying to murder him. Imagine the dashing of hopes and expectations that he must be going through. Crushing. Crushing his expectations and assumptions. What do we do with this kind of hurt and this kind of pain? The Lord tells us to turn even in this to Him. To let Him be the one, as David says, to carry the sword of justice and righteousness. For those that have hurt us, intentionally or unintentionally, we turn to the Lord and we give that over to the Lord. This is what David is saying. It's not up to me. It's not up to me to solve all of this stuff. It's not up to me to, to make it right. To fix it. I'm a fixer. I want, I want everybody to be happy. But David is saying, no, the, the Lord carries the sword of righteousness, justice. Turn it over to Him. In verse 10, David does just that. Even his own son he turns over to the sword of the Lord for the Lord to deal accordingly. But perhaps the most telling aspect of seeking the Lord with all of our lives is rejoicing in the hope of deliverance. So sometimes we have hopes that are dashed. But other times as we seek the Lord, we understand that our hope is, is not in those other people, not in ourselves, but we, our, our true hope, our real hope, is in the deliverance of the Lord. This is where David ultimately finds the steadfast love of the Lord, isn't it? As he nears the end of this psalm. In the concluding verse of the psalm, David declares that he will rejoice in God and the mouths of his enemies will be shut. His son Absalom was lying about David to, to try to overthrow him, about what David had done in order that Absalom would be king. And here David turns his enemy to the Lord. For his son was the liar. And David says, it's not up to me, but the Lord will silence the liar. The Lord will silence the enemy of his people. All of David's hopes lie not in his ability to get out of the wilderness, but lie in the steadfast loving of the presence of the Lord. Nothing else, for there is nothing else. For this love is better than life, for it's all the life that David has. He has nothing else and everything in the steadfast love of the Lord. For he knows that this time too will pass because the Lord is sovereign and he is good. And the Lord is faithful to his promises. There is a time to mourn. There is a time to lament and there's also a time to seek the Lord in the morning and in a lament. There's a time to turn our lips to praise, to lift our hands in worship, for He is the Lord. And He has done wondrous things. It reminds me of the song of Moses. As Moses was on the bank of the sea, and he's looking back over this sea, and he's just witnessed an army be drowned by the power of the Lord's hand. You see, Moses was at his very end too, wasn't he? He was between literally a rock and a hard place. And the Lord delivered. The hope that Moses had was in the deliverance of the Lord and 
And Moses sings this song. I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. The Lord doesn't promise that everything's going to go away. The Lord doesn't promise that our pains and our hurts are just going to be washed away in the ocean and the sea. But what He does promise is a hope of deliverance. He promised David a hope of deliverance in his sword of righteousness. He promised Moses the hope of, righteous, of deliverance and he swallowed the sea. He promises us a hope of deliverance because he sent Jesus to the cross where he defeated our true enemy, where the sword of justice came down on Jesus and not on me and not on you. So where is our hope? Our hope is an empty tomb because Jesus did not remain in the grave but he is alive. And he is alive, and I've said this right, at, well, usually I say this the Sunday after Easter, but he is alive as much today as he was about a month ago. For he sits enthroned on high to deliver us because of his steadfast love, because of his mercy. And so we turn and we seek his face. And so then what is the hope, or what is the promise of that hope? Himself. He promises us Himself. He promises us His love. Especially in the most difficult of days. Because His steadfast love is better than life. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for your love and for your grace for us, for your mercy to us. And Lord, I pray that you would, again, take these words and allow us to seek your face because of your steadfast love for us. Draw near to us this day. Wash over us with this love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.